Motorist Insurance Group and Brick Street Insurance have come together to create a better one-stop shop for agents and policyholders, encircling you with coverage at every step in life's journey. We are now in Cova Insurance. Welcome, everyone, to episode 255 of the NBA podcast. I'm Brian Toporek, and today we are going to talk about analytics in the NBA. Before we get to that, a reminder that you can follow us on Twitter at the NBA pod. In our bio, you can find our Twitter handles, so give us a follow as well. You can also find us on iTunes and wherever else podcasts are found. On iTunes, please subscribe, download, leave some five-star reviews. It would really help us out. And we're now being hosted on Spreaker, so check them out on Twitter at Spreaker. Joining me today is not my very stable genius of a co-host, Morton Jensen. He is out taking his kid. His kid's going back to school next week, so he's spending some, some family time before that happens. So instead... We have a very special guest, someone who was on the other other side of things for a few years, but has since come back to join the media once again. Seth Partnow of The Athletic. He's an NBA analyst there. Seth, how's it going, man? Uh, it's going great. Thanks uh, for having me on. I'm sorry Morton's not here. It's been a long while since he and I have talked. Yes, we'll, we'll definitely try to have you back on sometime during the season. Um, but in the meantime, please let our listeners know where they can find you on Twitter and then uh, anything else you'd like to plug. Sure. Um, Twitter is just at Seth Partnow, P-A-R-T-N-O-W. Um, don't, don't be alarmed by the picture of Hubie Brown. That's my spirit animal. Uh, <laughs> and um, just uh, uh, if this is dropping on Friday, I, uh, I wrote a piece today on The Athletic just talking about um, how uh, we saw a lot of first round picks get traded this year. Um, and I think a lot of reasons are, are, are have been stated why a uh, more competitive environment with the decline in like super teams, um, uh, a couple big name players wanting to be traded, shortened championship windows. But I think something else that I examined in that piece was looking at how uh, the twenty uh, the twenty seventeen salary cap um, uh, kind of bumped up the cost of rookie contracts to more of its historical level as opposed to during kind of the cap spike era. When it when it was uh, significantly lower relative to the salary cap, and that made uh, these these first round picks even more valuable as players because they were uh, cost controlled rookie deals are 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 still good value, but they were um, screaming value uh, for about four years there, kind of at the height of the of the uh, uh, the cap spike, which also coincided with uh, something I'm sure near and dear to your heart, the uh, process. <laughs> Indeed, yeah, I, I'm just glad all that stuff, all of these changes happened after the fact like i don't think you can ever do the process quite as it was before because of that the cap spike and now with the rookie salaries being tied and the flattened lottery odds you know teams could maybe try but it, it's not ever going to be the exact same model that sam hinkey used in those early years well i think this is i mean again a misunderstood thing about and this goes back to, to moneyball it was uh when, when moneyball came out everyone's like oh moneyball means chase on base percentage it's like no on base percentage <laughs> was the undervalued asset in baseball right um i think if someone was to attempt the similar style thing today they would identify where the undervalued uh where the exploits were in the current system and because of rule changes those have changed so yeah mm -hmm. someone wouldn't do it the exact same way but they would do it uh essentially the same way in terms of finding those those undervalued little niches of the cba and the competitive environment that they could exploit to start a rebuild and i think that um if if sam was doing the same thing today he would use tactics more amenable to the environment for sure. Yeah, I mean, to get out of soapbox, it, that the whole like tanking for draft picks was just one component of the process. And I know that tends to get glossed over, but he did do a lot of other smart things from you know the quote unquote hinky special with the four year contracts for second year or second round picks or undrafted players, whereas, you know, one year guaranteed or two years guaranteed to your team options or non guaranteed salary, getting possible contributors locked in for a long time and a cheap deal which panned out for a robert covington or a tj mcconnell and then you know he exploited the fact that teams were giving up draft picks if you just took on bad salary he was i don't want to say he's the first one to ever do it but he was aggressively seeking those types of deals out and now you know you see that far more often i feel like the the tentacles have kind of spread and it just gets less discussed now because there's not 
such a blatant, <laughs> obvious tanking. But, you know, like teams every summer, it's, you know, that that was the big complaint with the Knicks this summer was why didn't you guys just use your cap space to take on a bad contract or take on even not a bad contract, take on Mo Harkless. They gave up a first round pick just to get out of Mo Harkless. And he's a good player. Why didn't you use that cap space? So, you know, it's it's very it's been really interesting over the last six years to see how the the whole concept behind the process has evolved throughout the NBA. I mean, I think you could in some way say that like they won that, yeah. that viewpoint won because th- think of what we talk about uh, when we're talking about the NBA offseason. it seems like the, uh, I don't know if it's the right term, but the commodification of mm-hmm. player contracts seems pretty complete now. I mean, that's, that's, you know, we've been talking about that for three months now with this kind of crazy off season in terms of, of assets moving around and cap space being cleared and and wanting to get value for money on deals and stuff like that. And I don't think that that was all of those things were really discussed as much, um, you know, prior to around 2013, you know, when when you started to see these. Well, let me let me spend a draft pick to create cap space by moving this this dead or bad money into someone else's space. Um, And I think that so that that method of kind of almost econometric way of, of examining the game has become pretty well internalized across the league, certainly, but also the discussion of the league, I think. For sure. I mean, I think look no further than Oklahoma City, where, you know, five years ago, I don't know that Oklahoma City's offseason, what happened this offseason would be talked about so reverentially. But now you look at it and it's, wow, you got that much for Paul George? He's a great player, but five picks? And wow, you know, Russell Westbrook, you got multiple picks to get out of his deal as well. It's, you know, it's not just like, oh, you lost two top 15 players. You're headed for a massive rebuild. It's, oh, well, you did about as well as you could have to get, you know, if you guys were going to rebuild and Paul George requested that trade and you didn't really have a choice in trading him, you guys really, you nailed it. And I, I think you're right. It goes back to, you know, as you said, the commodification of the asset the, the boosting up of, okay, we need a long-term plan in place. That was what was always frustrating about those late 2000s, early 2010 Sixers. And I know Bulls fans, you know, prior to the past few years have had the same gripe with Garpax is there was just never really an obvious long-term plan in place. It was always like, let's just scuffle along and maybe get 45 wins in a first round playoff knockout. And at least, you know, when Hinky came in, as controversial as it was, his plan was, look, we we have a five-year or seven-year plan in place. It's going to take a long time. It's going to be painful. But at a certain point, the odds are in our favor that it will pay off. And now OKC, you know, they could get, I think it's like something like 15 draft picks over the next six or seven years. Like, the odds are in their favor that they'll hit on a couple of them, at least, just based on Sam Presti's drafting history. And... At a certain point, you know, you have Gilgis Alexander as a nice foundational piece. It's really, it's just fascinating to see how much smarter the general discourse has become over the last five years in terms of that. No, that's true. And I'm, it's something we kind of, before we started recording, we were kind of t- talking about the uh, the sort of the shortened windows that seems teams are operating under. And, and it, just seeing how that's kind of okay you need to have a plan but you, you can't have a seven-year plan maybe you can i mean you have a seven-year plan but there's a lot of you know uh question marks kind of and, and uncertainty and branches that you have to deal with it just because um with with contracts getting shorter because teams like they're getting smarter about who they're giving uh you know uh daily literally likes to say years not dollars is, is right. often the problem on some of these contracts Right. Um, teams are getting are getting smarter about not giving term to to you know non impact players. Um, so like, is it is it a seven year plan anymore? Or is it a three year plan? Is it a eighteen month plan? And so that's the the environment is kind of constantly changing. And I think with the kind of um, player empowerment era, I guess we're right now in a in an era where um, short term thinking might be. I don't know, ideal, but it may be more prevalent than um, than, it, than it has been recently. And that's I think that's for a number of reasons. I think that's, you know, part of it is the player empowerment. Part of it is the, uh, for lack of a better term, the player empowerment era. Part of it is um, 
the fact that you know we don't have these 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 obvious super teams anymore. I mean, kind of, it started two years ago when LeBron went west. Okay, well now the East is wide open, uh, and then and then now that the Warriors are 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 entering a kind of a different phase, uh, certainly at least for this year with with Clay Thompson out, and then possibly going forward um, as as kind of their core ages you know ages out a little bit. Um, who is the, there's no one team that, that you can look at and say that's it's probably not our time yet. Right. Um, so you know how many teams can justifiably think that they're pretty close, and then add on top of that the uh, the five or six other teams who probably aren't that close but can talk themselves into it. And now you have maybe half the league that thinks they're or more that thinks they're going for it on a yearly basis. Right. I mean, look at the Raptors last year. I mean, they went, they took the all-in gamble where it was, we know Kawhi Leonard can leave in a year, but we've reached our ceiling with this Kyle Lowry, DeMar DeRozan backcourt. Let's try. Let's just see what happens. And they, you know, they won the title. Kawhi still leaves. So good and bad there. Uh, a little mix of both. But I don't think they would trade. I, You know, I, I doubt if you ask Masai Ujiri, would you do that trade again? I think he would say 10 times out of 10, yes. Um, I, I know several people in the Raptors organization, and uh, un, unquestionably, um, and they would they would say it. I think they they would have even if they hadn't won this year. I think they would still say that it was that it was worthwhile. Um, I do want to I, I want to disagree a little bit with something you said there. You you mentioned like it's an all in bet, and I think again what we're saying with what we're seeing with how quick these cycles are is it's not really all in. It's it's um, it, it, it can be, but. I mean, didn't we kind of think the Raptors were going quote all in when they traded for for Serge Ibaka a couple of years ago, and That's then all true. of a sudden, and all of a sudden they're you know they're and they you know if you if you're going to stick with the strict poker analogy, they didn't they didn't necessarily win that hand, but they still were able to survive and go quote all in again you know two years later and then go all in again by by dealing for Marc Gasol. So mm-hmm. um, so I think that the shortened window also. Um, perhaps means that 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 it's not really a one big gamble thing. It's a series of I have to be ready to take these big gambles, but none of them. If I'm ever in a situation as a decision maker where this is it's this or it, I've probably dug myself into a corner. Right. And and so always having kind of the next the next move to make is also important, and that's where kind of the balance between the long and the short term. Uh, comes into play because you need to be positioning yourself both for the current move you're about to make, but also, okay, we make this move, we see what our team is, we see what happens, and then we have to do something else and figure it out six months from now. But we yeah. have to be, we have to have the assets, we have to have the uh, flexibility to to do so. We have to be prepared to 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 seek those opportunities as they arise. Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. Which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discount not available in all stages or situations. And now, an ad from Dad. <clears throat> Alright, save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? Right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's well made. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Right. Yeah, I mean, I forget where I read this. It was, I think it was on ESPN somewhere. And you were, you know, you were talking about Windows and how it's like, do you have a seven-year plan? Sure. But I think, I think it was from Brian Windhorst. And he got a quote that was like, these are two-year windows now. Like this is, you have 24 months from when you assemble this team to it's probably going to break up. And he was referring in part to the Clippers just because of how, you know, Kawhi and Paul George have the two plus one deals there. But I think it's just a general thing where I don't know that we're ever going to see another Spurs-like dynasty where you just have these guys in place for 15, 20 years and you're just going to be consistent. 
maybe not title contenders every year, but a consistent playoff team year in, year year out, you're going to win 50 plus games. It does feel like just a lot. There's going to be a lot more. Just in general, the teams are going to have like a cyclical nature where you have a couple of years up and then you might need to take a step back and then rinse won't repeat that kind of thing. And it, it somewhat dovetails into your piece today with the athletic with the first round picks and how, you know, if teams feel like they have a shot of winning a championship, I think there's, I forget who popular is that 5% theory, but if you have a 5% chance of winning the title, you do whatever it takes to get to go for it. But now, as you said, there are, how many teams could convince themselves that, oh, you know what? We could possibly have a chance to win a championship this year. It's at least eight, nine, ten. I mean, far more than we've seen at least since the rise of the Warriors and since LeBron went back to Cleveland this second time. So it does create just this uncertainty hanging over the regular season, really, that this is just going to be wild. Like We don't know what to expect because so many teams – are going in thinking they have a shot this year. Um, sorry, semi-related. I'm gonna I'm gonna break news to you on your podcast about your favorite team. Uh, according to to my colleague uh, Sham Sharanya, uh, the 76ers have hired Roy Hibbert as a player development coach. So really, yeah. So oh my god, as yeah. a as a Georgetown graduate, that just brings all the joy yeah. of the world to my heart. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So I getting away from 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 you know not breaking news since this this, this will come out hours after that tweet um, <laughs> right. Uh, so I think that the the two year window is actually more of a recognition of something that's always existed than being something new. Mm-hmm. I think that we've had the tendency. This has been it's been sort of something that's been annoying to me about the discourse the last couple of years is the Warriors were going to be forever and it's just like right. well no stuff happened and now they're done. And, and, you know, and the fact that stuff didn't happen before uh, is, you know, that's part of the good fortune that goes into, you know, any sort of dynastic situation. Like, you know, the the two Bulls three-peats, like, they they didn't really have any, any you know, Jordan and Pippen were pretty healthy during those two three-peats. That, like, that's, that, that matters. Um, mm-hmm. And even the Spurs, I mean, you, you talk about a sustained dynasty, but how many, how many really – you know, if you really look at it, they kind of won championships with three different teams. I mean, there was the the Twin Towers one. Uh, there was the 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 uh, with with uh, end of David Robinson, start of of Tim Duncan. Then there was kind of their quote big three with uh, with Duncan, Parker, Ginobili. And then there was you know the the last one, which was oh you know okay those guys are kind of still very good, but but aging. And now we have Kawhi Leonard, mm-hmm. and so they they were kind of always. Yes, they had a they had the stability of of Tim Duncan and and Greg Popovich and as it happened Tony Parker and Manu Ginobili, but it's not like they were never close to trading at least Parker. Um, right. Uh, so, but they but then they cycled around that and and no, they just didn't say, you know, my team is on the floor. Um, they kind of okay, this is our centerpiece and we're going to constantly build around that. And I think even team teams now are still going to be doing that. And I think that. Again, the shorter contracts for so-called uh, support players are a piece of that. Okay, well mm-hmm. we've we've got our we've got our two, three, maybe four uh, core pieces, and we want them locked up for as long as possible. But then around that, you know, if a guy's a if fifth starter, a six-man type, I mean, how confident are you that he's going to be at any given uh, that he's going to be playing at the same level in three or four years to right. want to commit to that? Or that he's going to, or that he, you're going to, you're you're convinced now that he fits well enough to be worth that commitment. So I think teams are just just recognizing kind of the reality that that things change quickly. Players get better and worse quickly. Injuries happen. Um, guys get unhappy. There's personality conflicts, free agency. All these things happen that that cause the best laid plans to kind of not come to fruition more often than not. So. Uh, staying agile and open to kind of cycling more rapidly is is just is uh, responding to conditions that I think have already always been there. Yeah, that that makes sense, and I think you know the 2016 cap spike in particular might have been the really harsh lesson for a lot of teams to learn. You know, we were talking about Daniel Rue with the years not dollars thing. Well, 2016. <laughs> That was the problem. A lot of co- teams not only handed out big contracts, 
But the long-term deals, the four-year, five-year deals to Mozgov and Luol Deng and Joakim Noah and Nick Batum, and now you're still dealing with the ramifications of those deals years later where you have to use picks to get off of the contract. Or in the Hornets' case, you you handed out so many bad contracts that you end up having to lowball Kemba Walker just to avoid the luxury tax. And you end up losing Kemba Walker because you made a bunch of mistakes three years earlier. Did you, so, did you scare quote have to? <laughs> yes. Yes, I did. Okay. Um, but, you know, I I mentioned the Knicks earlier. I think that was the one good thing they did this summer was, yeah, they, they didn't use their cap space to acquire players and pick up additional picks, but they did at least limit their contracts to those, you know, two-year deals with a non-guaranteed second year or second year team option. So at least they, they maintained financial flexibility, which was... Smart, although we'll see what, if anything, they can get for any of those guys at the trade deadline, because I think that's also part of the plan. Yeah, I think that, I mean, I think if you're going to be critical, um, you, you might say that they, they aren't getting much of their from their cap space uh, this year or, or using their cap space this year. But at least they didn't, like you said, at least they didn't, you know, go like go deeper into the hole by right. by encumbering themselves out a number of years. And I think that was. Um, we saw a number of teams, the Knicks included, I think, kind of throughout the, the 2000s and, and, and early teens, kind of constantly digging themselves deeper to try to, um, you know, uh, long ball, I guess, their way, you know, <laughs> triple bank shot their way out of these holes they've always dug themselves. And maybe, you know, Brooklyn kind of just sort of taking their medicine, realizing that they're that they're so asset poor that they're going to be bad for a couple of years and just find a find a find the bottom and start building from there maybe that's that's instructive though that's um uh i, I guess that's hard for a lot of 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 teams to 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 stomach and, and certainly hard for you know executives who might not survive that kind of well we're just gonna have to be bad <laughs> right uh, sort of um so it's it's one of those situations where possibly the uh um the and not speaking specifically of New York, just in general, like the the interests of the the people making the moves and the franchise itself can diverge in those kind of situations, where it's you know maybe it's time to take your medicine, but um, but I won't have a job if we do, so let's do something <laughs> right. else. Right, right, and I I know Danny is big on the you know ownership is the biggest advantage, competitive advantage in pro sports, but it it's true if an owner is not willing to, as you said, take their medicine. That it doesn't matter if they if they're insistent on we need to just do whatever we can to assemble the most competitive team. We aren't going to tank no matter what. Then you get stuck in that state of purgatory where you're not good enough to compete for a championship. You're not bad enough, you know, barring some major lottery luck, which maybe these flattened lots will help in that regard. But you're not bad enough to get a top three, top four pick most of the time. So you're kind of just in that state of. Well, we're gonna maybe get a first round playoff berth and then get clobbered. And where do we go from here? I think there is a there is a difference between you know looking at your team and well, we don't have really a championship window. Uh, there's a difference if you're like a 34 winish team doing that and a 48 winish team doing that. Mm-hmm. I think there's nothing. I think it's perfectly um, all right. Well, okay, we we there's not really a, an avenue for us to be a title team from where we are but we're pretty good and like the 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 path to getting really good would get be getting really terrible and then trying to get really good again so maybe let's just be pretty good for the next couple years and and maybe one of our guys takes a leap and then we'll figure it out i think that's perfectly fine i don't think that you know i don't think that uh um I don't know. I, I not to get Blazers fans mad at me, but I don't think right. I, no, but I don't think Portland is like a, a legit contender, mm-hmm. but they're pretty good. And, you know, the, the but they don't, you know, okay, could they if they fire sailed and traded McCollum and yada 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 um and 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 you know, maybe thought about trading Dame, could they possibly roll up some assets and, you know, get into the double draft and and then in five years be pretty good. Okay, yeah, they might, you know, they might eke out a couple more percentage of long-term championship odds. But I don't think I'd advise them to do that. Mm-hmm. I think you know, being being pretty good in a in a you know in a, in a situation where the city is behind you and and like you know that that's not nothing. 
Right. Um, I think we we tend to, in some ways, undervalue the the, the present if the present isn't winning a championship. Yeah. Like this is this is an you know this is show business. So the fact that people come to Blazers games and are entertained and invested in that team, uh, that's not nothing, and that shouldn't be that shouldn't be uh, disposed of um, heartlessly or cavalierly. Yeah. Well, and the Blazers are the perfect example of you know just run it back a couple times and like maybe something will break right, like we saw this year where they made it to the Western Conference yeah. Finals because they avoided the Warriors and the Rockets in the playoffs. The you know the playoff bracket broke well for them and. Not to say that they couldn't have beaten either of those teams, but that that's just, well, clearly they couldn't beat the Warriors because they didn't. Uh, but not to say they couldn't have beaten the Rockets, but, you know, sometimes you just need a lucky break or two. You always need a lucky break to win a title, basically, whether it's injury luck or a shot bouncing on a rim four times. <laughs> there's, there's, there's just the salt is... I'm, I'm, is, I'm not bitter. I'm not bitter, I swear. Oh... <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, you know that that the game was tied, so you only you know you only right. it was only um, it wasn't you, you didn't you wouldn't have won if that if that you wouldn't necessarily have won if that, that uh, the shot had rolled off the win. Yeah, so. and Jimmy Butler was he was like hobbling around. He hurt his ankle late in that game. I think that that goes under discussed because every every Sixers fan is convinced that the Sixers would have won that game. It was like go back and watch the last three minutes. Jimmy Butler was not going to make it through overtime just based on the way he looked. So, yes, it was probably ending poorly either way, but I'm still going to say it was pure luck and the Sixers should have won the title this year. Okay. <laughs> I, Ron, that's, that, that, that's, your, that, that's your prerogative, but yep. uh, I don't, yeah. I, I, you know, I, I thought we had worthy winners this year. But that's, <laughs> I uh, agree. In, in I agree. Event. Motorist Insurance Group and Brick Street Insurance have come together to create a better one-stop shop for agents and policyholders encircling you with coverage at every step in life's journey. We are now in Cova Insurance. And now, an ad from Dad. <clears throat> All right, save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's well made. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Um, but so let's let's go into. We're not going to talk about your tenure with the Bucks specifically. You were the director of research there for the last three years before you came to the Athletic. But I want to just have like a more big picture conversation about analytics because now you've seen it from both sides before you were with the bucks you were at nylon calculus uh you were the editor-in-chief there i believe is that right um I, sure man and I, I, I forget you managed to get it whatever the titles yeah. were like, <laughs> right yeah Same. i was uh, i was uh i was executing on ian levy's vision but you were head honcho yeah. head honcho yeah, we'll go with there that. we go we'll go with yeah that. um but you know so you've seen both sides of the equation. Now you've seen it from the media side. You've seen it from the team side. In general, how would you, how is the the discourse around analytics evolved, um, either over the past five years or even since you know from the time you were in the media last to now? Huh. That's a that's a big question. Um. Obviously, the discussion of metrics has uh, really started to permeate throughout the presentation of the game over the last couple of years. I mean, it's no I mean, it, it seems to me like, you know, you see the four factors being displayed in arena. You you hear, you know, talk, people talking about shot quality and and and, you know, uh, pace adjusted and all that kind of stuff on on broadcast. And, it, you know, it varies from it varies from from market to market. I mean, there was, you know, obviously someone like uh, Jim Peterson in Minnesota was a pretty early adopter of talking about this stuff. And then there's mm-hmm. other places that are still maybe a little uh, a, a little behind the times on that. But it's it is. <laughs> It's it's really started to permeate, you know, sort of throughout, and and you know, you uh, kind of the most high profile writers have have, uh, you know, I think probably uh, Zach Lowe has probably been at the forefront of not like relying necessarily, but certainly uh, sprinkling uh, um, statistical and analytic uh, points into his piece as support for what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so I think that in that way it's become it's kind of uh, I don't know if through osmosis kind of uh, seeped into the discussion a little bit more without necessarily people recognizing just how much of our of the discourse is driven by by it now and it, so it's still kind of the underlying I don't want to say nerds versus jocks but that still <laughs> seems like that like that 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 still exists right um uh and you know we see it all the time um you know people uh, you know uh, whether it's Charles Barkley or someone else taking taking shots at you know or or people talking about the quote lost art of the mid range and and um, don't get me off on a rant there because we have <laughs> you know that's that's uh, oh, watch my Sloan talk if you want to hear me rant about that it's 30 minutes of me un- uninterrupted basically talking about what actually happened to the mid range game so I'll direct people to that but that was a couple years ago and not much has changed um, so that um, so those kind of discussions are still happening and that's kind of frustrating also frustrating is the fact that I think that for whatever reason uh, in basketball there is not um, sort of the store of accumulated knowledge that baseball, for example, has developed, whether it's fan graphs, baseball prospectus. Uh, so a lot of the same discussions tend to come up cyclically every 18 months, two years. We're talking about the same thing uh, all over again. And, you know, when I wasn't able to talk about stuff publicly, it would always be frustrating. It's like, no, we know the answer to this already. Why? You guys, <laughs> why? Why? Um, and so uh, that's... Um, there hasn't necessarily been, at least in the public domain, as much of kind of building on previous work as uh, I, I would have hoped to have seen, especially as people have had more access to some of the fruits of, of, of uh, tracking data, first the mm-hmm. uh, Sport View, now second Spectrum data, which um, was just a huge leap forward in terms of the information we have available about the game. Uh, and the stuff you get, I mean, you, the, the stuff that's released publicly is, is the tip of the iceberg. But it's 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 pretty good and it's it's better than anything that the public had access to before. Right. Uh, and you know, frankly, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have be doing this now if that hadn't if that um, data hadn't started being even in its very filtered form that's available on NBA.com. If that hadn't started to be kind of pushed out by the league, um, like that's that's kind of allowed for smarter examination of of not basketball from a statistical standpoint so much as. Uh, using statistics to ina- to examine basketball from a basketball standpoint. I mean, you can mm-hmm. you can talk more intelligently about who's doing what in a pick and roll because you have, you know, uh, you have access to looking at the outcome of every pick and roll that happened in the league last year, every pick and roll that happened in the league over the last six years, um, and and so that's not just I can't just watch watch a bit of film and say oh this guy's good or bad. I can I can actually okay of the three thousand times that that you know. John Wall has done run a pick and roll, and you know, in the last three years, what is what's happened? Is that good? You can right. start to you can start to look at things like that, and that's yes, there's that's statistics, but that's also just basketball, right? Yeah, yeah I'm glad you're drawing that distinction where because I, I feel like that still is somewhat the perception for people who discount analytics. It's well, you're just reading a spreadsheet, and no, it's you're using this as a jumping off point. And then you go back and watch like you're not properly applying analytics if you're not actually watching what's happening as well. And the cool thing about NBA.com is that for a lot of these things, you there are little links right there that you can click on and you can see all of the, you know, whatever it is, all the three point attempts, all the passing attempts. You can see a lot of that stuff, you know, separated out, I'm sure, as a you know, with each individual team, as you said, this is only the tip of the iceberg. I'm sure you all had a lot more, you know, nitty gritty kind of ways to narrow that stuff down. But yes, this is, it, it's both. You're not just using analytics. You're not just watching film or if you are, you're doing it wrong because you need both of them to kind of complement each other to have a full range of analysis, which, you know, you mentioned Zach Lowe. He's been the goat of that for years now. And that's what makes him so good is he can, you know, he split, he puts those clips throughout his articles and he could show you what the data is telling. Yeah. And 
I think that a lot of there's there's you know with the with the greater public access to data there's also there's there's more kind of public facing analytic stuff being done um, that just by you know law of large numbers that means there's a there's more bad public analytics work being done and 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 usually with the, the it's often the, the the stuff that's done that I consider to be bad isn't bad statistics it's bad basketball it's not mm-hmm. understanding how this data point represents. Um, something that happens in the game. I mean, again, with there's with uh, with the the tracking data that we're we're just inundated with tons of new metrics that we're not new new event new event counts and results that we're not used to seeing that we you know we're we're pretty used to the the traditional box score. So you start to see some the like the the kind of one of the uh, the uh, you know the, the the joke lines from from my from uh, Sloan shortly after tracking data come out came out was uh, uh, Stan Van Gundy talking about okay this player ran 3.3 miles in a game so what and that's, that's a great point like so what if you like that's just a that's a free floating number that doesn't mean anything and then on NBA.com you can see you know a quote average speed for a player. Now people are 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 taking that to mean this player is faster than that player, and actually what that is is it's just you know it's just the distance that player traveled divided by the time they're on the court. Right. So that's fa- that's counting both the time they're sprinting up and down the court and the time they're just standing in the corner. So which one better represents how fast the guy is? It's not the average of the two; it's the sprinting bit. But the the, the data you see is is the aggregation of both and if you don't know that you're going to say silly things like oh this guy's the fastest player in the league I, like <laughs> runs four four you know 4.2 miles an hour it's like that's actually pretty slow i walk faster than that right like you know like you, you see the stuff that comes out of like the um the the next gen stats in football and just happened to be uh with preseason started just happened to come across my timeline is is on like a particular punt return a guy hit 21 miles an hour so Football football player peak speed twenty one miles an hour fastest fastest quote basketball players according to this average speed metric four something miles an hour right. you know it's not it's not the same thing so using it to mean the same thing is you're you're misunderstanding the data you're working with and that's necessarily going to lead you to bad conclusions and you know some of the some of the the, the craziness that I think that the that the stodgy people. Even the ones who are there's some people there's some who are just you know luddites who are just you know that's that's their bit they're not going to come along with it but there's some <laughs> right. people who are open to it and they see a, they see a particular result and it's like that makes no sense at all and and they're not wrong um, yeah be, because it's you're you're not if you are analyzing not understanding the uh, events and inputs you're using then you're necessarily going to come to conclusions that are off because you you're your logic of what's happened and what's causing what isn't sound because you don't really know what it is you're measuring. Yeah. I'm really glad you got into the bad analytics part. Cause that's what I wanted to ask next. You know, you mentioned the average speed, which <laughs> is hilarious in the way that people do use that. But what are some of the other metrics that have come out maybe even in the last couple of years, since you were on the team side of things and you couldn't, you know, come out and necessarily critique how people have been using them, but what are the types of things that where you read this and you just start cringing? Um, five-man lineup data mm-hmm. is not – I understand what people are getting at. Um, the problem is the sample sizes are just tiny. Um, I, I don't have it in front of me, but um, I want to say something like in the 50s maybe, lineups played at least 100 minutes together of a, of a five-person unit. Um, and really to get to a meaningful sample size, it's probably around 250 minutes. Um, because anything below that, and then all of a sudden, like you know, a make or miss of one three pointer is like a is like a swing of a, of of you know t- uh, two or three points of net rating, mm-hmm. and that's you know that's that's a pretty massive <laughs> that's a pretty massive gap in terms of what you th- what you would quote think of a lineup. I mean, a, a team that's a you know a, a, a plus two per hundred team versus plus four per hundred team. That's a that's a big gap in quality. That's a you know that's a that's that's six seven wins on a season. That's those are two very different teams. And so if one shot can cause that much variance in in your sample, then you're not looking at a big enough sample. And so looking at five man lineups and and then trying to say, well this lineup dot dot dot. It's like well they've played 50 minutes together. So how can you really say anything? Mm-hmm. Now if you're going to look at like Kind of groups of combinations. So, you know, for example, next year, 
um, be interesting to see what the Sixers look like um, when when Horford is is taking the quote backup center minutes, right? Mm-hmm. So then that's 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 going to be lineups where it's like Embiid off, Horford on, and you know and you know Harris and Richardson on also or something like that, and so and not really caring who the two other guys or two of three of of Harris, Richardson, and Simmons will be like the real non Embiid lineups. And that, so those will be lineups that'll be worth looking at, and you'll have a you'll have a pretty good sample on those, and that'll tell you kind of how the Sixers are doing in that kind of look, because that look is more determined by Joel's not in the game, Al is, and we still have, but we still have you know three starters in the game, right? And so that that's a more a better way of looking at it than being strictly, um, and that's it's harder to look at it that way. Like there's there's kind of no way around that, but um, but to be to intelligently examine it, that's how you have to do it, as opposed to just saying, okay, it's I'm I'm going to look at lineups with uh, Horford and you know and and Zaire Smith and, and and Harris and and Richardson and Simmons and just that lineup. That's that's right. the that's the that's the uh, that's the uh, Horford at center lineup. And that lineup, who knows how much how many minutes that that lineup will play this year? It'll probably be under 200. Mm-hmm. And so you know, not that that's a bad lineup it's just that's the five-man combinations are are there there's a lot of them and and you don't get many looks at at most of them except for a team starters so um so that's that's a big one um uh this is probably something i'm going to write about at some point this this summer into the fall is some defensive shooting metrics Mm. especially on an individual basis um there's not really a lot of evidence that there is a now this is something I have to be very careful about uh, how I say this, because I do think that contesting shots well is a skill. Mm-hmm. I do not think our current data allows us to pick that skill out from the noise of make or miss variance on jump shots. Mm-hmm. So metrics based on 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 kind of the, that numbers, I am very skeptical of. Um, at the rim, th- those are pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, just 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 for a number of reasons. Basically, like if you have the ball near the rim, you should probably shoot. So <laughs> sure. no, no. So like the level of defensive pressure is, um, it, you know, it, it doesn't affect the shot pass decision as much. Whereas if, you know, if a guy is close enough to really bother your jump shot, you're probably going to do something else. You probably should do something else. Mm-hmm. So that then like you're using the shooting percentage to measure that defensive pressure when really the best outcome of that defensive pressure is I'm going to drive, I'm going to pass, I'm going to do something else, but I'm not going to like try to try to arc of this jump shot over this the seven two guy sprinting at me mm-hmm. so so those 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 are metrics that that i i am not fond of um on off metrics are tricky i think there are use for them i think that uh you can put yourself in in some some bad situations with them um occasionally like uh there's stats that have come out about certain players like hey every year this guy is has been in the league his team has been better with him off the floor than on okay Mm -hmm. that's kind of something that's that's you know that's not dispositive but that's that's at least interesting i think some of the more kind of regression based on off stats are probably better in terms of making those effects out though those can be kind of scary and black boxy to the uh to the layperson i'm talking of course about like uh, uh real plus minus on espn or uh rapim you can see uh it's a called regularized adjusted plus minus um the best site for that right now is a site called nba shot charts um uh, dot com is a place you can see that and has uh one three and five year versions of it those are pretty good in terms of picking out kind of those large scale effects of a guy on the court versus not. Um, they don't really they don't really tell you why, which is more important in many ways. But they tell you kind of what's happened mm-hmm. and, and give you an insight into into who's had an an impact. Yeah. Okay. So in general, how much stock do you put into those catch-all metrics like RPM or PER? I know you know used to be uh, the gold standard, and now it's kind of falling back to the pack a little bit. I mean, PR, I think still like PR isn't something I would use as like a decision point, but as far as a quick, um, you know, a quick look at like a guy's progress, I mean, you can, you know, you, if you want to look at a guy and, and see how his career is, has kind of progressed, 
like you go on his basketball page, okay, his rookie year he had an 11 PER, then 14, then in his third year he was 18, 19, you know, and in there every year. Okay, that that gives you a a, a quick and dirty look at like you know, and it's easily publicly available. Mm-hmm. So he, okay, that's when he kind of hit his maturity was that third year, and then he and then in his 12th year he dropped off to about 14. Okay, that's you can kind of see where his like lifespan as a as like a in his kind of more or less prime was was kind of in those areas so that it can be useful in that uh in that regard um it, but again it's not i have a per of uh, i have a, a per of 17 and yours is 15 therefore i'm better than you no right. i never do that um but i think like the a lot of the catch-alls like they're they're in a in a more um kind of more advanced look they still kind of are that of first pass of of uh of who's been effective in in the role they're playing whether it's whether it's strictly re- regression based ones like um like uh rpm or or rapim or or kind of there's other other kind of box score based models and play by play based models that are kind of built off of those but don't directly uh require regressions um uh, like a box score plus minus uh, something mm-hmm. like that. Those are those are those are are useful first passes. But because all of those are kind of because they're they've reduced everything to one number, you don't see why. And when you're actually like examining why a team is doing well, and that and to figure out who is going to do well in the future, you kind of need to know why they did well in the past. Um, it, it doesn't. They don't really address those kind of questions. So they get you to a certain point of, okay, these guys were, we think, pretty good. Now we need to figure out why and why they fit together and what happens if you change one part out for another. And those involve more kind of bottom-up skill set analysis of, okay, this guy's a good shooter. This guy is a good rim protector. This guy's a good playmaker who doesn't turn the ball over. And then you use, you know, use different tools to examine those individual skill sets. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. Um the the other one I want to ask you about metrics wise at least was you know the synergy tracking you mentioned how you know now you can look at all of the isolation numbers or all of the pick and roll numbers or post up or transition whatever how much stock do you put into those you know either went like during your time with the Bucks or just even now you know or before with nylon calculus now with the athletic do you think those have you know are, should we put all of our stock into those or should we have some degree of skepticism yes um i'll (laughs) i'll I'll make a distinction here at least for nba level uh in in between synergy and and second spectrum derived stats um synergy because they're only looking at uh plays that end a possession it's kind of the same thing i was talking about with uh with the you know def- defending a jump shot, okay, you can look mm-hmm. at a guy's defensive isolation numbers. Um, you know what? What about the times when a guy gets gets isoed and he shuts the guy down, and the guy passes out? That doesn't show up anywhere in synergy, but that's a pretty valuable thing the guy just did. He just okay, he tried to iso you, take you, and you burn six seconds of shot clock, and he did nothing and had just had to pass the ball out. That's a right. pretty good defensive possession right there, but you get no credit for it in synergy. Um, and and also it it. Um, you know, uh, and a lot of actions like a pick and roll action. All right. A lot of teams use, I mean, every team kind of at some level uses pick and roll as an initiating thing to create defensive movement and then get into something else. Well, in, in, if you're looking at, again, if you're looking at synergy data, like once the ball gets away from the people involved in the pick and roll, then they're getting no credit at all for what happens on the possession, even though, uh, a lot of the more flow-based teams. I mean, you think back to kind of the uh, the, the hallmark of the beautiful game Spurs, right? That that like the that last champ that last Spurs championship team. What would they do? They'd run a pick and roll, create an advantage. The ball would swing. The next guy would drive. Defense would collapse. He'd kick. Next guy would drive. The defense would clack. He'd he'd kick, and all of a sudden you have a wide open three pointer. And that's you know, is that because of the pick and roll? Mm-hmm. Some degree, yeah, because you created the initial advantage there, but that would show up nowhere in like a synergy stat. Whereas uh, in a second spectrum derived stat, you can kind of see, all right, every time this guy runs a pick and roll, what is, what are the average outcomes of those offensive plays? Whether whether he ended up shooting it or passing it to shooter, or 
if you got some continuity and something else happened. So that's a that's a more holistic way of of seeing kind of what happens when when this player is involved in an action in a certain way. So that leads me to kind of the big picture question because it sounds like we've made obvious strides with analytics over the years and the stuff that is even publicly available as you said has gotten significantly better but as you mentioned there are some flaws with the way we either use the analytics or with especially with the defensive stuff as you said it doesn't measure everything so do you see a way in which we'll get to a point where you can act accurately measure you know everything this player does on the court well or not well or is there always going to be some kind of human element where you just can't capture everything i don't want to say never but we're not close to capturing everything um yeah if, if that makes sense like we're yeah. the, the zone of like we're, we're 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 going to learn more but part of learning more is also learning there's more things we just don't know yet right okay um, yeah that- so, um, and I think the, this is something I have I've talked about a little bit before, but one of the big things that even like tracking data isn't, and even if tracking data gets better to the point where we can see hands and limbs and, and player facing and stuff like that is we can't hear voices and right. communication is a huge part of defense. I mean, communication is a big part of offense too, but it's even bigger part of defense. And so that like to really figure out who is, you know, there's there's you know player like you know this uh, it's kind of cliche to say like a center is the quarterback of a defense right Right. well if we could hear what if we could hear that communication then you could start to pick out like okay this this guy you know this rookie center doesn't know what he's doing yet he never talks on defense whereas you know the other hand you have you know a mark gasol or something like that who's calling opponent plays out and telling all four other guys what action is coming and how to and 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 getting them in the proper spots to respond effectively and then you could if you if you had that information then you could start to value that communication and really see like where some of that true impact is coming that doesn't necessarily show up in in you know more box score based statistics for guys who are just good at defense right. without necessarily blocking a ton of shots or getting steals or having huge rebounding numbers yeah no, that's a great point because I, I mean, I'm thinking from a Sixers perspective again, but I remember Game Five of that Raptors Sixers series, which is right after Embiid came down with the bubonic plague or whatever the hell he had his his second major illness in that series. But you could tell he was just so physically out of it that game, but also he was not communicating the way he usually does, and the Sixers just got absolutely their their clocks clean that night, and then. Game six, he comes back, and he you can see he's got more pep in his step. He's communicating better, and all of a sudden, they, they're playing defense again. So that's a really good point about, you know, no matter w- how many strides we make in terms of this tracking data, yes, there is a huge aspect in terms of communication and whether these guys, yeah, sure, maybe they aren't in the right position, but who knows what they said on the court or who knows what scheme the coach was running. So again it all goes back to it's like it's a mixture of data and film like you have to be able to you can look at the data and see what it's telling you but then you have to go back and actually watch what happened and kind of piece the two together to get a full picture well i see i again i don't i wouldn't i would not make the uh make a distinction between data and film like mm-hmm. they they're they're both data one of them, right. just one set is is largely quantitative. The other set is largely qualitative. They're, they're, it's all information about basketball and figuring out how to integrate those two things together is really where the, the, the key is to, to, to understanding as much as possible. And I think that's where, you know, to get back to the stuff we were talking earlier about the sort of the dichotomy between, you know, the eye test versus stats, like there, there, it, there shouldn't be because it's, it's all just <laughs> basketball. And it's, right. it's it's using a different set of eyes to watch basketball. And, you know, both of them are valuable and you combine them. It's better than each of them individually. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's that's really the, the the best way is to not treat them as separate things. Just treat them as as different ways of, of approaching the same problem. Yeah, no, that that makes 
total sense. I feel like you need to just have that plastered in your Twitter bio. <laughs> that should just be your running motto. Um, before we wrap up, I wanted to talk briefly about just the season that's coming because Lord knows we had plenty of player movement this off season. So now that you can approach it again from a more of a fan media writer perspective instead of working for a specific team, what are the big things you're keeping an eye on this season? I think we touched on it a little bit. I mean, just the fact of how wide open it is this year and, and so many teams, like how, how are they going to work? Like how does the West shake out is kind of a, a kind of a, kind of a big thing. Um, I'm a little curious to see like what the Celtics look like, um, given how like kind of how radically they've they've uh, uh, over been overhauled. Um, I'm suspecting that they might be a little better than people think, um, just because I think that like the, there's probably some more room for some of their younger players to grow into now. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't. I, they may not be quite on the same level as they have been the last couple of years, but I, I like, I think that the uh, reports of their demise might be, uh, have been exaggerated. Um, the yeah. Pelicans are obviously going to be fascinating. Um, um, they, uh, uh, you know, we didn't see much of Zion at summer league, but I, I don't know if anyone, if, if any pair of rookies was more impressive relative to kind of expectations than, than uh, Nikhil, uh, 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 Walker Alexander or <laughs> uh, <laughs> Nikhil Alexander Walker and uh, and uh, Jackson Hayes, um, um, but so they so they're going to be they're going to be super interesting and then obviously the Clippers seem like they have a, they are a potential powerhouse so mm-hmm. um, and yeah I think those so there's just a, there's a lot more uncertainty about how it's all going to shake out this year um, then and you know I. And I feel like I've I feel like you're gonna get angry mail from like the the seven or other other teams that like <laughs> did big things this summer that I didn't just mention. So yeah, a bunch of teams did a lot of really interesting things, and there's uh, gonna be a, a a lot to a lot to look forward to. And even some of the teams that might not even be particularly good might be yeah. interesting this year. I mean, Memphis might be pretty interesting this year. I don't I don't think they're gonna be they're not gonna be good, but between you know uh, between. Uh, uh, Jackson and John Morant, and that you know that, that that's the start of an interesting young team. Um, what does year two of the of Trey Young mm-hmm. Hawks look like? Um, what you know what do, what what do the Mavs look like now as as uh, you know as Luca enters his, his second year um, uh, as as a charter member of as the the driver of the of the Luca bus? I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm really interested to see. Uh, especially now that the, the the images are coming out of of him like yeah. post summer training training regime, skinny Luca. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's uh, not not that not that he was ever particularly portly, but uh, right. but uh, Evans Amir on Twitter you always likes to talk about his favorite draft guys are ones with uh, fat guy upside. <laughs> um, that's uh, and 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 you know it's uh, maybe we're seeing a little of that with 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 Luca. Right. Um, if, you know, is you know he did what he did last year, and his body wasn't totally right. Well, now that's getting fixed. What are we going to see? Um, yeah. So there's there's like you look all around the league, and they're just really really possibly interesting stories to look at. So uh, and and without kind of the oh, but this is all just prologue before the Warriors play someone in the finals again right. that we've had kind of the last couple of years. Um, which you know even that I thought was was. I think that their their series with the Rockets the last two years have kind of shown that that even that wasn't as predetermined as people like to make it sound. Right. So it just it ended up that way. But yeah. uh, but there just isn't that feeling of uh, predestination, I guess, about where we're going to be in in May and June of next year. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean the West is wide open. You could tell me one of like six or seven teams won the West, and it wouldn't surprise me. Like either of the LA teams. Uh, Nuggets, Blazers. If everything breaks right, I'm trying to counteract the Blazers thing that you did earlier. So okay. to keep them out well, now, of our... <laughs> wait, wait, hold on, you're you're missing a fan base that'll that'll be mad at you if we don't. Oh, I know, Houston. No, well, the them, but no, uh-huh. Utah. The, the... Oh, of course. I no, I'm actually very high on Utah. Yeah, but that's yeah. the thing. Is it's like we it's like who, who am I forgetting? Oh wait, there's yeah. another team. Oh right. wait, there's another team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Houston's the one I'm a little skeptical of. 
but I, I mean, I could, I, I get the plan. I see how it could work, but until I actually see how Russ and Harden coexist, I know they did back in the early 2010s, but they're both very different players now. You know, the jury remains out on them, but yeah, like Denver, Utah are the two that I'm, you know, aside from the LA teams, I'm very high on this year. And then I think the East is at least, I agree with you, Boston, the, the demise is probably overstated. I think, you know, <laughs> Kemba is probably a slightly worse player than Kyrie in terms of talent, but whatever the chemistry issues in the locker room last year were, it might be, he might make up for that talent gap with not pissing off all of his younger teammates. I think the bigger downgrade is Horford to Cantor, but I'm with you. I do think they're actually still going to be a pretty good team. Um, but that said, I think East is at least a little more top heavy in that Milwaukee and Philly seem like they're on that tier above where then, you know, the next year you've got Boston, Indiana, Toronto, Brooklyn, if things break right and Kyrie doesn't alienate his locker room again. Um, but whereas in the West, like, I could not tell you, I don't think the Clippers are going to be the best regular season team. I think it's probably going to be Denver, but then I can't tell you who's going to come out of the the West. Whereas the East, I feel like it's more likely than not going to be one of Milwaukee or Philly. I just don't know which one's going to be. Yeah, that sounds right. And another, another sort of interesting thing, and this is, this is, this is maybe something a league, the league doesn't love is I think uh, we're we're in an area where being the best regular season team, like okay, a home court advantage for the playoffs matters, but having your guys ready at the end is like that 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 argument seems to be settled. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the the uh, load load management has won, yeah. uh, and you know I and and um, again that's I think that as an entertainment product for the league that's possibly problematic. But from a competitive standpoint, it's pretty obvious. Right. Um, so uh, that's so that that how that develops this year is is another interesting thing. And then into you know next summer league is see if we get as much in, uh, uh, rookie load management. Yeah. Next, next summer league is this year. Maybe we'll actually get to see some people play. Right. Fingers crossed. Well, I yeah. think this year was especially weird because of as you mentioned, so many draft picks changed hands. Summer League started, I believe, before the July moratorium was even over. So a lot of those, and then the Anthony Davis, there was some trade limbo there as well. So like a lot of those guys just weren't even on their correct teams at the time Summer League started. So it sounds like at least they might push back, either push the moratorium forward or push Summer League back because it, it does sound like the NBA recognized that was an issue at least. But you're right in terms of the regular season, load management is going to be one of the biggest storylines to monitor i mean i've talked about this on this on this podcast before but i don't think it was a coincidence the sixers signed al horford used a big chunk of their cap space on al horford like i i do not expect to see joel Embiid play more than 60 to 65 games this season and i think that's the smart play but i could see that happening across the league i mean the clippers are the same deal like they Kawhi pretty clearly wanted a co-star so he could continue that maintenance plan where you take 20 games off because he said throughout the finals, like I wouldn't be here if not for the load man or load management. I don't think the Clippers are going to push him and say, well, we just gave you all this money. you got to play 75 games for us. They're going to say, look, man, do whatever you need to do to get back to the level you were at in April, May and June, because that's all we care about. And, and even that, I think that's like the, the the sort of the conference imbalance maybe might have something to play with that. That the top teams in the East maybe have a little bit more wiggle room to mm. to to do that. Whereas you know at at a certain point, um, you know do you do you really want to be say say the Clippers scuffle a little bit like you know all right does it matter mm, I don't know but if you end up in the four five. And then so your second round series, you'd have to go to, you know, go to Denver, Utah. Is that, I mean, I, but I guess I, I, on some level, if like the teams one through six or whatever are, are all comparable, maybe that doesn't matter. So maybe you don't actually care where you finish in that group. Right. Um, but maybe you do. So there's there's just less room for, um, possibly less room for, for that kind of uh, uh, 
less margin for error in, mm-hmm. in, in, in the West than there is the East in terms of, of, okay, maybe we'll drop a game here or there, but because it's so important to have our guys right for the postseason. Right. Yeah, it's going to be a tricky balancing act for a lot of these teams, for sure. Uh, so, Seth, I think that's a good place for us to wrap up. Again, can you let our listeners know where they can find you on Twitter and where they can find your work? Uh, you can uh, find me at, at The Athletic. I had a, we talked about had a piece today about the – we didn't actually talk about about the uh, kind of the slightly declining value of first-round picks. Um, and on Twitter, at Seth Partnow, uh, S-E-T-H-P-A-R-T-N-O-W, all one word. Uh, and yeah, that's those are the two best places to find me for now. Good stuff. Well, thanks again for coming on, man. Best of luck at the Athletic. I know. I mean, if if anyone listening was not following you before your time with the Bucks and had not seen your work at Nylon Calculus, you are, I mean, one of the best analytic minds out there. It's great to have you back on this side. Um, and yeah, best of luck, man. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. Uh, hi, hi, Morton. We'll talk next time. Yeah, for sure. And in the meantime, please follow us on Twitter at the NBA Pod. You can find our Twitter handles in our bio, so give us a follow as well. You can also find us on iTunes and wherever else podcasts are found. On iTunes, please subscribe, download, leave some five-star reviews. And we're now being hosted on Spreaker, so check them out on Twitter at Spreaker. Until next time, I'm Brian Toporic, and I was joined today by Seth Partnow. Seth, have a good weekend, man. You too. People have gathered around ideas since the beginning of time. Each successful collaboration pushing innovation forward building a stronger future. Motorist Insurance Group and Brick Street Insurance have combined decades of experience to create an even better one-stop shop for agents and policyholders, encircling businesses and individuals with coverage at every step in life's journey. We are now in Cova Insurance. Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. Which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discount not available in all states or situations.